in Ezekiel 33, as I mentioned a minute ago. So let's stand and let's hear the word of the Lord together. I'm only going to read the first uh, nine or so verses um, this morning, and then we'll kind of use that as a way to kind of launch into the rest of the chapter. Ezekiel chapter 33, I'm reading from the CSB this morning, so it may be a little bit different. I didn't give anyone a heads up as far as what to put on the screen, but we'll go ahead and go with it this morning, okay? Here we go. Let's hear the word of the Lord together. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and tell them, suppose I bring the sword against the land and the people of that land and select a man from among them, appointing him as their watchman. And suppose he sees the sword coming against the land and blows his ram's horn to warn the people. Then if anyone hears the sound of the ram's horn, but ignores the warning and the sword comes and takes him away, his death will be, on his, will be his own fault." Since he heard the sound of the ram's horn, but ignored the warning, his death is his own fault. If he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. However, suppose the watchman sees the sword coming, but doesn't blow the ram's horn so that the people aren't warned, and the sword comes and takes away their lives. Then they have been taken away because of their iniquity. Sorry, then they would have been taken away because of their iniquity, but I will hold the watchman accountable for their blood. As for you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. When you hear a word from my mouth, give them a warning from me. If I say to the wicked, wicked one, um, you will surely die, but you do not, and, and you do not speak out to warn them about his way, that wicked person will die for his iniquity. Yet I will hold you responsible for his blood. But if you warn a wicked person to turn, away, turn from his way, and he doesn't turn from his way, he will die for his iniquity, but you will have rescued yourself. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. This morning we're going to come to chapter 33 in our study in Ezekiel as we're making our way through this. Hopefully we'll have this, uh, our study in Ezekiel done in January. Um, but it's a really critical text that we're about to study through in this chapter. We're just going to look at one chapter this morning um, in Ezekiel's prophecy because Chapter 33 preface kind of plays a role of a transition. It points us back to everything that Ezekiel's been teaching, how he's been warning the people of Israel about why God's judging them and what, what is the befall of the people of Israel. But it also stands as a transition as we look forward to how God will move forward and continue his redemptive plans in spite of Israel's failure. So today as we study chapter 33, we want to kind of take a notice of this transition because, again, as we've looked at everything through chapters 1 through 32, um, we see God calling out Israel. We see God calling out Judah uh, for their rebellion and disobedience as his covenant people. And you'll remember this theme of watchmen goes back to chapter 3. Our brother Ben preached this way back in October. And he called, at that point, was calling Ezekiel to be his Watchman and his task as watchman, Ezekiel's task as watchman, has been to speak everything, as we just saw in this text, everything that God would tell him to his people there in the Kabar region. And what God has revealed to his exiles over the course of our study thus far has not been encouraging, has it? It has shown some really dark moments, really dark realities that, that befall the people of God. And, and what's worse is it's not just dark realities that they have been experiencing. But they are responsible for the dark realities that they are experiencing. So then through these, through these chapters, we've seen God use things like Synax. We talked about Synax. I won't go back through what those are, but Synax are just these, these theatrical plays, if you will, where God shows Israel the hardness of their heart. 
And then he continues on and all, and to show them through a vision of the temple that the temple has fallen. The temple has been made completely corrupt. Its religious activities are, are, are a stench to God's nostrils. And God himself would leave the temple. And we know ultimately God's coming back in Ezekiel. We're going to see this in next week in chapter, as we get into chapters 34 and following. That God's leaving the temple, but he's not abandoning his people. He's going to come to his people in the Kabar Canal, the exiles there in Babylon, okay? But he leaves the temple there, and it seems like all is lost, like God has abandoned his covenant, that God has just abandoned his people, that God himself has no interest in his promises anymore. But the reason why God is leaving isn't because he's abandoning them. It's because Israel has abandoned him. They're engaged in false worship. They've engaged in apostasy. They've, they've, they've left their one first true love, and they've started loving all kinds of idols and gods and things um, of the other nations. They are enraptured. Their hearts are enraptured by false worship. And what's even more staggering is that we continue down through this passage. We saw this a little bit later. God gives another collection of poems and parables to continue to show Israel why he's abandoned the temple and why he's abandoned that old way, because ultimately it's their depravity. Their depravity is so deep that they've rendered themselves, and we saw this in three different pictures, no more than a useless burnt stick, an unfaithful wife, um, promiscuous, two promiscuous sisters who, who have basically um, sold themselves to the worship and love of other nations and their power. So all of this Leading up to this moment, to this chapter 33, God has been just revealing painstakingly the wickedness of God's people. And he goes even further than that. He even shows them that even though he's, he's, he's judging them, he's also judging all these nations in which he's using, as we saw the last couple of weeks, these wicked nations. He'll judge them as well because they're guilty of the same thing. At the end, all we need to remember is that God takes his worship seriously. God takes his people's hearts, should be, should be captured by his grace and his mercy. And so if you want to summarize all of chapters 1 through 32, here's basically what we've seen. Number one, a deep spiritual apathy is set over the people of Israel. Deep spiritual apathy. Israel and Judah had suffered deep spiritual just like abandonment, and they failed to see the judgment that was to come upon them as they rebelled and disobeyed their God. They have presumed, which many of us do if we're not careful, we presume our faith rather than actually are engaged in heart-changing and deeply cultivated experiential faith in our God. And so due to this spiritual apathy, what happens is this is all comes about because of what? Their hearts are captured by other things. They have been enraptured by idolatry. And what is idolatry? Well, they had, Judah and Israel had turned their hearts to earthly concerns and earthly kingdoms, and they were consumed with the interplay of the day, of the political talk and world politics, especially the kings and the, the, the prophets and all the others around them. And they were more concerned about making sure they pivoted to the right alliances and the right people and this, that, and the other, Right? And they defaulted, though, what's more, to their gods. Because they were the small kids on the block. Their god didn't seem big to them anymore compared to all these world powers. And so they felt like they had to capitulate. They didn't necessarily not want to worship their god, but they wanted to mix their god in with all the other gods of the world. And God would have none of it. 
And so God, at the end of the day, as they're in, immersed in their idolatry, God begins to expose Israel, you've said, to this dark reality, right? And he's doing it through this watchman. He's using this watchman, Ezekiel, by grace to show the people of Israel that they have been unfaithful, but God himself is going to be merciful to them. He calls them, and back in chapter 3, he calls this watchman to go and undertake this role faithfully. And it's not going to be the easiest role. His own wife would die and he wouldn't be able to speak about it. We didn't get to talk about that back a few weeks ago, chapter 25, I believe. But all his life has been to give witness to who God is and what he's about. And God's people, and what we'll see at the end of this this morning, have not heard, still don't want to hear. They still are immersed in their own little interplay of modern life for them. So again, chapter 33 marks this transition. God's calling back to this idea of the watchman we just read here in chapter uh, 33, 1 through 9, and he's not focused on the watchman here. If you noticed in the passage, he's calling the people who've heard to listen. The whole point of the watchman was never really about how faithful the watchman was. It was more about Will people hear God's message to them? Will God's people be changed by it? He was sending this watchman to both reveal very hard things to them, but also for them to see God. God never comes to his people in the hardest of times with, 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 without at least one thing, one to show them how, how dark things are in their own hearts, but also to show them that he is still there. He still loves his people and he still calls them back to him. It's a merciful thing, even in the darkest of times when God comes and speaks to us and reveals hard things to us, but it's still a merciful thing because guess what? God's still speaking. But God's people can still miss God speaking. And so what's going to happen from chapter 33 forward or from 34 forward, what's going to happen is, is God says, okay, this is the reality of things and it's, it's not good things but I'm going to point you to some new things. New David. A new king. A new Israel who's filled with his spirit. A hope because of that for the nations. A true hope for the nations. That will result in a vision of a new temple when Jesus returns. This is why this is so important to our time in Advent. Because that's what we're waiting on. Jesus is coming back to show us the new and better temple, to usher us in. He is himself the temple, but he then invites us into his new kingdom. He is the new temple, but then as he comes back, he ushers us into the new garden, a new Eden, a new heavens, a new earth. That's what we're going to see for the remainder of our time in Ezekiel. That's why it so fits so well on our, on our Advent season, does it not? So there's three things that I want to, four things I want to see in this text. And here's our main idea this morning. What we need to see in chapter 33 is simply this, that God's people are a people who live by faith. We live by faith in God's future and God's certain promises. This is always who God's people have been. This is always who God's people... Adam and Eve turned away from God's promises. They turned away from God's future and God's certainty. But then God himself would have a people, and that's what the whole point 
of Abraham and everything else since, this, since that time has been to show that God's true people are not a people who are perfect people. And they're not people who are sinless people. They're not people who are in and of themselves holy people, but they are a people who live by faith in a holy God who has a holy future, who has a holy certain promise for them. And, and people, listen, friends, this same message is our message today. And so if we take anything away from chapter 33 this morning, it is this, that God's people are a people who live by faith in God's future, in God's certain promises, and that we would not be distracted by our own self-confidence and by our own earthly identities. If there's anything that, 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 that threatens to distract us from the promises of God, it has to be self-confidence. I got this. I can fix this. No, you can't. No, you can't. You're not able to. And two, that we'd be enraptured by our own identity, our own self-made identity. Isn't that what the world seems to be cultivating today? It's all about you crafting the perfect you. And God says, you can't do that either. And God's people, the church that sits in this room and all those who've been, who are out sick today and visiting family for Thanksgiving, like all of us who come in here each week are coming here with that same hope. We live by faith in who God is and what he's doing. We don't live by faith in I'm going to, I'm going to somehow or another find the better me. Or that somehow or another I'm going to have confidence that I can work things out my own way. That's exactly what 33 will point us to this morning. Three things we're going to look in here this morning. Uh, four things, actually. I want us to see, and if you have your little worship guides, you can look at that as well. One we want to look at is beware of spiritual apathy in our life. We've already talked about it. Second thing we're going to look at this morning is um, to beware of insufficient righteousness. Third thing we're going to look at is to beware of the futility of hoping in crushed idols. And then we're going to conclude all of that with, with remembering the greatest need we have, which is to live by faith, okay? We're going to, we're going to take that journey this morning. So let's look at that, third, that first point this morning that I want us to just consider of beware of spiritual apathy. We've already read the text, but let's just kind of remind ourselves of what's happened. The people have ignored God's message. Just kind of let that settle for you for a moment. Here's a people who have been given the grace of God, a God who would reveal himself to them, a God who would speak to them, but yet they have ignored His message, the people of Israel had grown cold because of their distraction from the relative ease of their life, perhaps. I mean, they had a pretty easy gig, it feels like at times. Or they were being overly concerned with the daily news wire, the moves and counter moves of this person or that nation or this group or that group. Their kings and priests became numb to their divine responsibilities, right? And they were seeking ways to preserve the nation rather than resting in their God. That was their divine role, to point to people to rest in their, in their Lord. But they had forgotten that. And so when spiritual apathy sets in, it, 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 it helps, it begins and ends with our distraction by these earthly realities. That, that's the key thing. When you and I are, when we, we know the spiritual apathy is setting in is when we're so distracted by the latest thing that's coming down through the, the news wire or through the culture or whatever it is. We're so consumed by those things and not resting in the God who is the one who preserves us. 
the one who protects us, the one who cares for us. He's the one who saves us. And friends, we would do well to open our eyes to this reality in our lives. All of us. I mean, I, think, I don't think anyone's exempt from this. The best of us in this room still struggle with these things if we're honest with ourselves. I know I am. We're overly concerned with our daily needs, right? We're overly concerned with our daily wants. We're overly concerned with the political moves and counter moves of one group over another group. Or, or we're overly concerned with things that, like, for instance, like our Christian faith sometimes becomes more about ethical and lifestyle tribe rather than a people who behold a, redem- a hope of redemption. Have you ever noticed that? Think about how the most public Christians out there tend to be more focused on certain ethical situations, which, are, by the way, are not wrong, but then they never give witness to the fact that in spite of those, those, those sin challenges and those ethical challenges, they never point back to what is the Christian's real hope? Jesus. And what he has accomplished for us. And so the Christian faith is always being kind of cloaked behind this kind of ethical or political or cultural tribe and rather being, being and, and therefore we miss the redemptive hope that comes in Jesus in the midst of this. And it's something that I think is all over the place. And so what happens is the church becomes what? Just an activity. It just becomes an activity. It's just one thing out of many things that I do and I participate on a given week. And that's a dangerous thing. When this is just something that you put on your schedule, you don't show up with any intentionality. We don't show up with any intentionality. Or perhaps even, as I mentioned earlier, Christmas Day. We come with Christmas Day and we wanna, we're, like, we're more concerned about the fact that we've interrupted our family traditions. And by the way, this is not a little back way of just making us feel guilty for not showing up. Okay, I'm not, I'm not doing that here. Okay, But I'm just saying we, we get more concerned by the fact of, of how we have to rearrange our schedule instead of meeting the Jesus in which we say Christmas is all about, right? And friends, I just want to call us to deep self-examination in these things. I mean, and again, I'm not, I'm not trying to, like, suppose the worst of any other church that might make different decisions than us on Christmas Day, but I'm sorry, it's a tired tribe, tired diatribe when one church would just say, well, we're just trying to give our people a rest on Christmas Day, so we're just going to shut down that day. Jesus is your rest. And the last time I checked, the, the, the Lord's Day Sabbath is about the people of God resting in their, in their God. And so if, we have, if we've got a rest because you did 17 different services on Christmas Eve, then you, yeah, of course you've worn your people out. Sorry, I'm just a little bit of a, my own little side issue there, okay? And I've talked to this to my, my friends. But friends, we come together, and again, that's again, not a subtle way, but trying to get us to do things. I, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not interested in that. What I'm interested in is that we would come to God's, and be a part of God's people here, whether it's Sunday morning worship, youth ministry, children's ministry, small group, Sunday school, we come in with some intention to worship and meet with our God, with the people of God. That there's, it's not just something that we do out of just happenstance. That our spiritual, if we're careful, our spiritual commitments become riddled with this kind of reductionistic believism, easy believism, right? We don't want that for the people of God. And so we must be aware of those realities that will strip our spiritual heritage and our identity down and replace it with something else. Friends, let's not do that. We must beware of those distractions that plague our lives and that will lead us into this deep spiritual apathy. Why? Because God's spoken. Why should we be aware of these things? Because God speaks. The people of God come in here each and every week because we are assured that God has spoken to us. 
See, God is speaking is the most gracious of all acts. See, we could be living in a world drowning in our own just misery because we ourselves are just guessing at who God is, but we don't have to guess who God is. God has spoken. Yes, there's natural revelation, and the Bible teaches us that no man will be held, will not be, uh, not be held accountable for denying God's sovereign rule and that he's good and just. We know that those are real things that every man, woman, and child should know. They deny it, yes, in Romans 1 we see that. But, but the reality is that we as a people of God don't come in here because of natural revelation, because we things we think we know. We come in here because of things we do know. God has specifically special revelation. He has spoken. He doesn't leave us guessing about who He is. And Israel stumbled, on, stumbled around this because they, because they took for granted who they were as His covenant people, and they didn't realize that the most special reality that they had was the fact that they had a God who speaks. God speaks to us. The reason why we need to be careful with spiritual apathy is because ultimately it's the most gracious of things for God to speak to His people. Never forget that. So we must be careful not to take the watchmen in our lives for granted. God has always used faithful watchmen as instruments to convey His message to God's people. Israel had a wide array of prophets in which they would listen to. Unfortunately, in the exilic time, they were listening to the wrong prophets. Prophets who would give them the wrong message. Jeremiah confronts those prophets and says, those prophets are full of it. They don't need to listen to those guys. This is not who your God is. The problem is sometimes many of us in here, like the kings of Israel, are listening to the wrong prophets. We're listening to the wrong messages. We're listening to the wrong voices. And we get enamored by their cultural analysis. We get enamored by their clever ways in which they capitulate, I mean, you know, capitulate the message of the gospel. Be careful with these people. The Jewish people were enamored by their, this cultural analysis. And, 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 and God's people, if we're not careful, the church today can do the same thing. Amen? Don't get sidetracked by them. Anchor in to the ones who are just opening the Bible faithfully, your Sunday school teachers, your small group leaders, perhaps faithful preachers and pastors beyond this building. Yes, of course. And this is unfortunately what has happened throughout the ages. We just get sidetracked by things that are not central to the gospel. So I'll give you a little bit about my background. Some of us in here share this background. I grew up in an independent fundamental Baptist uh, background, okay? Jesus wasn't the center of that background. Here's what the center of the background was. KJV only. I had a guy who came and talked from the camp, that our, the church that I grew up in, a little small church, and uh, the pastor who was, or the camp director who came and spoke that morning made the mistake of not preaching KJV. After he got finished preaching, he got rebuked by the lead deacon in the church publicly for not preaching from the KJV. Pre-tribulational, premillennial eschatology. That was the thing that I grew up in, right? That, you are not a Christian if you don't hold to these things. And if you're holding these things, by the way, we love you, okay? All right, I do. You're wrong, but I love you, all right? <laughs> so, um, but I don't mean that to be disparaging, but, 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 that, but it, this was a mark of orthodoxy. But where's Jesus in that? Women wearing ankle-length dresses and forbidden to wear pants. My mom got ridiculed for getting in the floor with kids 
at a kid's event playing with them because she wore pants. That's the kind of environment I grew up in. I'm a two-time dropout of Liberty University for this very reason, because I would not wear a tie. Now, the new, the new Liberty is not the same as the old Liberty, but I'm a two-time dropout because I wouldn't wear a tie. It was fun times. Now, we laugh and scoff at these things, right? Because we think, oh, man, this sounds so ridiculous. But doesn't it also sound equally ridiculous when churches would divide over COVID politics? When churches would divide over issues related to that or issues over how we maybe educate our children or extreme elements of patriarchy or any other number of things that seem to be the central thing that people are grasping for today. No, Jesus is the central thing the church must grasp for in every age. Friends, every age. Every age. These other false tests of orthodoxy just deflect us away from who Jesus is. But the earliest church fathers knew that we needed to have a, a true test of orthodoxy. That's what the Apostles' Creed is so helpful for us. Let me read it to us. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born by, of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He, cru- he was crucified and died and buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead and he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church. Catholic means universal. The communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Now why does this Apostles' Creed exist? Because it was there as a small way in which they would be a confession to tell who truly believed in the, go- the gospel once delivered to all saints for all times. And, and friends, at the end of the day, this is what we would do well is to remind ourselves what the central reality of our faith um, is. And if we don't, just like the Israelites of the day, our blood will be on our own heads. To hear the message week in and week out to hear the good news of the gospel for Jesus week in and week out, and to walk away unchanged is to render ourselves blood on our own hands. Right? And so if you're here this morning and you're not a believer, a teenager, child, adult, whoever you may be, if you're here and you don't know and have not trusted and have not repented and have not leaned on and not, and not really rested in who Jesus is, today is a day, is the same opportunity for you today as it will be next week or in tomorrow or whenever. Don't leave here with blood on your hands. Don't leave here with blood on your hands. So our, which, which leads to the ultimate, ultimate reason. The next section here is, is kind of a, flows out of this spiritual apathy because our spiritual apathy is fed by two things. Over-reliance on our self-righteousness and over-reliance on lifeless and crushed idols. You see where we're going? That's exactly what will happen here in the rest of this chapter. Chapter 33, let me pick up in verse 10. Now as for you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, you have said this, our, you have said this, our transgressions and our sins are heavy upon us and we are wasting away because of them. How then can we survive or how then shall we live? Tell them 
As I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. Repent, repent of your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Verse 12, now, son of man, say to your people, the righteousness of the righteous person will not save him on the day of his transgression. Neither will the wickedness of the wicked person cause him to stumble on the day he turns from his wickedness. No, the righteous person won't be able to survive by his righteousness on the day he sins. When I tell the righteous person that he will surely live, but he trusts in his righteousness and acts unjustly, then none of his righteousness will be remembered and he will die because of the injustice he has committed. So when I tell the wicked person, you will surely die, and, but he repents of his sin and does what is just and right, he turns, he returns collateral, makes restitution for what he has stolen and walks in the statutes of life without committing injustice, he will certainly live. He will not die. None of the sins he has committed will be held against him. He has done what is just and right. He will certainly live. But your people say, this is not fair. The Lord's way is not fair, even though it is on their own way that's not fair. When a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice, he will, he will die for it. But if a wicked person turns from his wickedness and does what is just and right, he will live because of it. Yet you say the Lord's isn't, way isn't fair. I judge each of you according to his ways, house of Israel. You see in this text... There's an over-reliance on Israel, and I would argue the same thing happens in the church in all ages, of resting in our own righteousness. There's arrogance. There's great arrogance when we trust in our self-made righteousness. God speaks to his people through Ezekiel by answering the question that's on their hearts. We have... We have sinned, and, and, God's, and, 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 your, and your transgressions are, and our sins weigh heavy on us. And they ask the question, how shall we live? And God's, ample, and God's simple question to them is, repent. And I would say, by defection, believe. Repent and believe. What is it exactly are they supposed to believe? Well, let's keep working through it. See, their arrogant hope was in their own righteousness. And that is the epitome of evil to God. Did you know that? That God, what God finds most evil in the world is when a people come to him believing that they are righteous enough to behold him, to relate to him, to earn their own righteous standing before God in, the, in, in, in heaven. And God will not have any of it. And again, that's what we saw in 12 through 16. The righteous person thought he could to save himself before righteous, by his own righteousness. And God says he won't do. But the wicked person also said that they weren't worthy of his salvation because they were so wicked. And God says, but you know what? If you turn, there'll be nothing to stand in your way. In other words, the whole point of this whole text is repentance and faith. When we turn to God, we're returning to Him, we're turning from something, turning to someone, and by turning to someone, we're believing, we're putting our faith, we're putting our trust in the thing, in the person that we are turning to. And so God says to the people of Ezekiel, Ezekiel speaking to the people of Israel here in the exile, He's saying to them, your righteousness will never do. You can't do this on your own. There's no one righteous enough to earn their own salvation. And there's no one too wicked to be given salvation if he repents and returns to God. 
Did you know that? One of the books I love reading, I've used a few times over the years, is Gospel by a guy named J.D. Greer, and he says in there, there's a little statement that I find helpful, there's nothing that I have done to make God love me more. And there's, I'm sorry, nothing I, I could do that God, make God love me more, and there's nothing I have done to make God love me less. That's the gospel. When you're living by, by, by faith alone, you're believing there's nothing I can do to separate myself as long as I'm trusting in who God is, I'm living in repentance and trusting in His ways for my life. And, but friends, we sometimes get so caught up in this and we think, well, that doesn't seem right. This is what God's people were saying here in chapter 33. This is unjust for God to do. Why would God say, here's a person who's living a relatively good life, and yet they sin in some way and they're not good enough? Or this horrible Hitler-like sin guy over here can turn in a second and trust in Jesus and really truly believe in Him and His sins will be washed away? And the answer to that is, absolutely, that is God's ways. That is who he is. That is the gospel in a nutshell. Why? Because the law is not sufficient for us. Does that make sense? I don't mean law in the sense of like the law is not the supreme standard of God. But I'm saying we ourselves, because of our sin nature, cannot earn our ways back through the law. Our law keeping. Only the true law keeper, Jesus, can earn us a relationship with God. And that's what Ezekiel wants us to see, right? That's what Ezekiel... The problem of all mankind is that we've been missing who God is. And this is the whole message right here, right? They missed... Israel thought that they were God's people because God chose them because they were a special people. They were good enough. They want, and, and they weren't. They were a covenant people because God chose them, not because... And God didn't choose them because they were holy people. Does that make sense? They were holy people because God chose them. They weren't, a, they weren't chosen because, God was, because they were holy people. It's a real fundamental like, Christian truth. But it's not just that we rely on our self-righteousness. We oftentimes don't recognize the futility of resting in our crushed idols. Because that's what we see next here in chapter 33. The temple, finally word comes and the temple has been crushed. Read, read 21 through 22 with me. In the twelfth year of our exile, in the tenth month, on the fifth day of the month, a fugitive from Jerusalem came to me and reported, the city has been taken. Now the hand of the Lord has been on me that evening before the fugitive arrived, and he opened my mouth before the man came to me in the morning. So my mouth was opened and I was no longer mute. See, Ezekiel had known the situation going back out in Israel, and he had been selectively keeping back some of that information perhaps. That's kind of what the idea is here. But here comes the man. His final word comes in. The city's been sacked. It also means the temple has been destroyed. For Israel to hear that reality would have been a gut punch. Because all of their hopes rely back in Jerusalem on this, the religious center of their life, in this building that had been built by Solomon. And everything seemed would seem dire to them. The fall of Jerusalem and the fall of the temple would have been something inconceivable to them because they believed that that's where all of God's work was being done. And so long as that stood, so long as those, that brick and mortar was existing, that means God was at work. But now, what, 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 what are we doing here? Remember, God has already left the temple and He's now coming to them. We'll see that in a couple of chapters down the road here. 
And our people here and now, what are they going to do? Well, they only have two choices. They only respond to, uh, to Ezekiel's um, message in two ways here in this text. They, the people back in Jerusalem, the remnant, they're still back there. Here's what it says of them in 24 through 26. Abraham was, they say Abraham was only one person, yet we received possession of the land, but we are many. Surely the land will be given to us as a possession. So they, they still held on to their crushed idol. You see this? They still believed, okay, well, okay, it's, it's damaged, looks pretty bad, but that's still our land. If, if, if Abraham had gotten this as one person, well, then surely we, with all of us, we can certainly resurrect this, and this land shall still be our possession, and all of God's promises will still be for us. Let's keep on reading. Therefore, say to them, God says, this is God's response to their arrogant presumption about their squatter's rights. That's basically what they're doing. They think they have squatter's rights. Say to them, this is what the Lord God says. You eat meat with blood in it. You look to your idols. You shed blood. Should you then receive possession of the land? You've relied on your swords. You have committed detestable acts. And each of you has defiled your neighbor's wife. Should you then receive possession of the land? God says to you, you really think that I am with you in that presumption? Do you really think I am with you when you've been so consumed with false worship? Do you really think that I am with you when you have put all of your energies into your sword, into your military might? Do you think I'm really with you? Do you think I'm really with you when you've committed such detestable acts, lust and money and child sacrifice? We've talked about that in this series. Do you think you will receive this land? Do you think you'll receive the eternal reward? And God's answer is in 27 through 29. Tell them this. This is what the Lord God says. As surely as I live, those who are in the ruins will fall by the sword. Those in the open field I will give into wild animals to be devoured. And those in the strongholds and caves will die in the end by plague. And I will make the land a desolate waste, and its proud strength will come to an end. The mountains of Israel will become desolate with no one passing through, and they will know that I am the Lord when I make the land a desolate waste because of all the detestable acts that they have committed. It's a gracious thing. And I, and I have to believe the people hearing this message were part of the true people of God they trusted in the redemption and they took their hands, they unclenched their hands from their crushed idols. But sometimes God has to pry our hands off of our crushed idols. Does he not? Sometimes it's just not easy for us to do that. He'll take our death grip and he'll pull us off of that. And he has to do that. He says, listen, I'm going to do this. I'm going to pry your hands off of these things. But it wasn't just the remnant back in Israel that was presumptuously believing, what were the people in Kabar doing? Well, look at verses 30 through 32. As for you, son of man, your people are talking about you near the city walls and in the doorways of their houses. Your one person speaks to another, each saying to his brother, come and hear what the message that has come from the Lord. So my people come to you and crowd, sit in front of you, hear your words, Imagine just bringing your popcorn like you're going to a movie, right? 
and they don't obey them. The people of God hear the word of God, but they just sit there as if it's just entertaining. It's just another movie. It's just another news flash. Their mouths go out passionately, but their hearts pursue dishonest profit. Yes, to them, they are like a singer of passionate songs who has a beautiful voice and plays skillfully on an instrument. They hear your words, but they don't obey them. I think they're in a worse position than the remnant. God's at least prying their hands off their crushed idols. But here we have these people in Kabar, and God indicts them, and he says, you, they hear your words, but they don't see God. They don't hear God. They are tickled by your preaching, Ezekiel. You've become quite the entertaining guy, but they don't hear what you're laying down for them. Friends, there are churches that gather today all around this nation, all around this world, and people who sit in comfortable seating listening to compelling messages by pastors who, by and large, are doing everything they can throughout the week to labor over the text of Scripture and to lay out faithfully what God says. And here's what they are. They, they people show up. They look for mere inspiration, just for their daily needs. They look for a momentary escape from their lives. They simply want practical help, how-tos for their life. And they miss Jesus. They miss the gospel. They will leave those buildings this morning unmoved. They'll leave unmoved even though they have come face to face through the word of God with the one true mover of the universe. Friends, I know all of this sounds really heavy that we can be so gripped by our own self-righteousness, that we can be so gripped by our own idolatry and have such a tight hold on it, that we can be so indifferent to the preached word of God to us. And that's why I want to land the plane this way this morning. If we have a hope in this church's future, if we have a hope that churches like this will be planted across this land, across this region which we hope to be part of that, as we've talked many times here at Grace. It's going to be planting churches. It's going to be establishing this church week in and week out on one necessity, that we remember our greatest need is to live by faith. Israel had forgotten to live by faith in God's promises. So they were living by faith in the other nations and all that stuff. Their only hope, the only hope we have it's to live by faith in what? God, who saves, who protects, who's at work. He is the great lion, ravaging, moving. Like Aslan, he's on the move. That is our great hope. This is the hallmark of our Christian faith, to live by faith and by repentance. This was the heart of the great Protestant Reformation, which we, of course, some of us celebrated quite well here a couple weeks ago. This is the reason why 500 years ago, the great Protestant Reformation leader, or you might want to say Martin Luther, grounded his concerns with the Roman church with these 95 theses on this, of this fundamental fact. And in the very, first, the very first point, he says, we shall live by faith alone. He goes, this is what he says. Um, number one, 
When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Live by repentance and faith. A true life of repentance is a life of true faith. You can't have repentance. You can't just turn from dead idols. You can't just turn from reliance of yourself, your, 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 your own self-righteousness unless you turn to the one who's perfectly righteous. That's faith. You can't turn from your idols, your false gods, if you don't true, tr turn to the one true living God, yes? That is repentance. So you can't have repentance without faith, right? We can't have it. And so to, to, it's the question that the Israelites are asking of Ezekiel, we feel crushed by our sins, how shall we live? By faith. By faith. Because repentance is turning from sin and turning from our, any means by which we would seek our own self-made righteousness and turning to the one who is righteous, as I've already said. And God reminds them, I take no pleasure in the death of the sinner. And Peter, 2 Peter 3.9, picks up on the same thing. If you want to turn there with me, we'll finish up our time there this morning. 2 Peter 3.9, he says... The Lord does not delay His promises. This is what we had in our long gospel reading this morning. As some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but to all, for all to come to repentance. The whole context of chapter 3, 1 through 17 especially, is this question of, God does, he's delaying, he's being patient, he's waiting at this particular point. Why? So that people would behold the goodness of the gospel. That people would behold living by faith in the one true living Christ. How are we to live? By faith alone, in one truth alone. What is that truth? God is saving a people for himself. And on the day of the Lord, which by the way, if you read through chapter 3, it's about the day of the Lord. And on the day of the Lord, these people will be triumphantly ushered into a new kingdom, new heavens and new earth. And only the people who have lived and trusted in the, in, in the one true living God through Jesus will be among those people. Only those people who have trusted in God's covenant promises to us. To live by faith alone is to know that we are a people who have set our hands and set our minds on the end of the age where God will establish a new heavens and a new earth inhabited by this us, his elect exiles today in this age. But until that time, until that time, the church is an embassy of word and sacrament. We come each week, open God's word. We come each week, take of the Lord's table, baptize a few people along the way. Praise God. And that is our message to the world. We're an embassy of a new heavens and new earth that is yet to come. Amen? And Jesus, from chapter 33, now we get into chapter 34, is going to be pointing to this new heavens and new earth and this, this advancing hope of God through his promises. I can't wait to get into it with you next week. It's going to be awesome. Let's get ready for that. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we come, we've labored through a pretty difficult passage. 
This passage has not been kind, at least doesn't feel kind. It has been kind, but it doesn't feel kind. I guess that's the best way of saying it. It, re- it reminds us that, God, we don't have enough strength in ourselves to, to fix and, uh, and, and address our own problems. It reminds us, Jesus, that none of us come to this morning, come to you and, 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 can, and turn to you in true worship if we are still clinging to crushed idols. Father, would you just help our people in all days to take good self-examination week in and week out of those places that would produce spiritual apathy in our own hearts and souls. And Father, as we labor through this and we rest and we, and we worship through this Advent season, Jesus, may we be reminded by the incarnate Son who has come and who is coming again, as we were noted earlier, in joy to the world. He is our hope in the past. He's our hope in the present. And He is our, all of our hope for the future. May your people see this worship this, exalt this, take joy in this. Not in just this moment, in every day to come until Jesus returns. Amen.